Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. We've made it a year, uh, officially. Yeah, um, one, I, one year ago today, as we record this, we published the first episode. Yeah. Is, are we? We're not quite to fifty-two episodes. Uh, yeah, we missed a couple in there. We're, we're getting close. Yeah. Uh, well, we've had you know what? We've had a year with two weeks of vacation. It's That's right. <laughs> had some vacation and you know some travel and stuff like that in there, and so you know there were there were a couple times when you know we just didn't manage to get one out, but we we do our best to uh, satisfy your your automotive discussion needs every week. And I'm sure it's got to be at least worth what everybody's paying for it so here's that <laughs> i mean it will if you know if you're not satisfied just let us know we'll give you back every penny that you paid for it that's exactly right um all right well so let's get to what we've been driving um this week it's a very mercedes centric uh garage or driveway whatever we're gonna call it um, but so, you know what? You have the bigger, better one, so you can go first. Okay. So uh, I've, I've been driving, I was driving for the past week, the uh, 2018 Mercedes S560 4Matic. Uh, and so this is the, the, the new refreshed version of the S-Class, um, which just just came into the fleet uh, in the last couple of weeks um, and got a bunch of updates this year. Uh the the U.S. spec version still doesn't get the uh, the new powertrains that they're starting to offer in Europe. Uh, the new three liter inline six, uh, which you know is the return of the inline six to the Mercedes lineup, uh, and it doesn't have the uh, um, the uh, the forty eight val or forty eight volt electrical system. But you know the S five sixty does have a very nice uh, twin turbocharged four liter V six or V six V eight, uh, which is a it's you know it's a wonderful engine. I mean you know it's a it's a fairly big heavy car, uh, but you know this this engine does okay. It, it you know it's it's no uh, AMG S sixty three, but it'll do. I can I can live with it. So but, overall, like, it's a big coupe. It's not supposed to be a sports car, right? So like, no, it's it, a sedan. It's a, this was the Ford. I'm, I'm sorry, coupe. sedan. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I had coupes on the mind because I had a coupe. So 
um, but like you know, I'm sure it fits fits the S class mold uh, that's that's been cast for for years, right? It's, it feels like a proper top of the the range Mercedes. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it, it it's exactly what you would expect of a of a big Benz. You know, it's got, you know, all the luxury features um, and, you know, for one hundred and fifty grand, it should have, you know, everything that you would expect of a big Benz. But, wow. you know, it's got it's, you know, got all the, the luxury accoutrements, you know, all the all the technology that Mercedes Benz can muster, um, including, you know, the latest and greatest version of their intelligent drive system. Uh, and this was the reason why I happened to get this car uh, at this point in time, because after I published my write-up of the uh, the Cadillac CT6 Super Cruise system a few weeks back, uh, I heard from uh, uh, one of my contacts at Mercedes, uh, Christian Bokic. Uh, he's a communications manager there, and he wanted to get me in this car to get my impressions of, of their version of the system. And like uh, Super Cruise, uh, you know, they call it a, a level two, uh, level two point five system. You know, so that means it's it's got partial automation. Um, so it's it's got a lot of automated features, but it's not a car that it's not a self driving car. No matter you know what any dimwit from the New York Times might think. Uh, this, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about there. I can't, can't imagine what you've read. Yeah. Um, there, <laughs> and, and, you know, if, in case anyone from the New York Times is listening, there are no self-driving cars available for sale today anywhere. Look, that not just Tesla, not from Volvo, not from Mercedes, and not from Cadillac or anybody else. You're making it, you're being too much of a precision enthusiast. It doesn't make a good headline to say, you know, I drove the um, the the semi. You can't even say semi-autonomous, right? I drove the yeah, semi okay. semi semi-automated or semi-autonomous is fine. Okay, yeah, because it's it's not it's not capable of being fully autonomous. It's not capable of of taking a full control and and driving the vehicle without human input. Yeah, see, that's uh, not just not as punchy of a headline. No, but you know, having headlines that are punchy but non-factual are you know is part of the reason why we're in the current political situation we are in today. <laughs> and Sam veers us right into the ditch. Uh, um, so uh, anyway, what was your impression of the the Mercedes system? Okay, so first of all. Um, Unlike the the Cadillac system, uh, the Mercedes Intelligent Drive is not a hands-off system. So that means you do have to keep your hands on the wheel or at least, you know, in close enough proximity of the wheel, you know, that, you know, it feels you occasionally nudging it and moving it. And um, one other differentiator that uh, the system has, you know, for Super Cruise, Cadillac actually uh, builds capacitor sensors into uh, the steering wheel. So in those instances where it does occasionally ask you to, uh, to touch the wheel, all you, you know, with the Cadillac, all you have to do is touch it. You don't actually have to move the wheel, um, to make it think that you're holding the wheel. Uh, it's, it's just looking for contact in the case of the Mercedes system. It's, it's using the, the sensor and the steering column, uh, that detects, you know, wheel motion. And that's how, you know, how it tells. So, you know, even if you're holding the wheel, if you, if you happen to be holding it extremely steady, it might think that you're not actually holding the wheel. So, you know, you do kind of have to maybe, you know, twitch it just slightly, uh, just to let it know, Hey, yeah, you're still here and paying attention. So it, it is a hands-on system. 
but given that you know you don't you don't have to really grasp the wheel most of the time when intelligent drive is active um, it will for the most part you know track down the lanes and like the the, the mercedes e-class we talked about back in the summer that i drove um, it uh, the the s-class now has a stereo vision camera system up front um, that's supplied by uh, autoleave a swedish supplier and it's a vastly superior system to uh, this the system's uh, from Mobileye, which are all monovision systems. It's um, very consistent, very reliable in its ability to detect lane markers, even ones that are badly faded. Um, and uh, on Sunday, uh, we took a drive up north with my wife um, and coming back, got in some pretty heavy rain. And even with the rain coming down pretty good, it was still pretty reliably picking up the, the lane markings on the highway. Uh, and it was able to keep the system active uh, which is much more than I can say for most of the other lane keeping systems I've tried. Um, it did uh, coming, you know, after after about 20 minutes of a particularly heavy downpour, um, there was enough crud that had built up on the radar sensor um, that it did come up and say, you know, sensor's dirty, you know, system's going to disengage now, take over full control. Um, and so for about the next 10 minutes or so, I did have to, take full control of the vehicle, you know, steering and everything. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, the rain continued, but it, it, it slowed down a bit it, and it did rinse off the sensor by itself. And so it was able to resume. But that's the sort of thing that, you know, if we're looking towards a, you know, a fully automated future, you know, car makers are going to have to address how you keep those sensors from getting mucked up. Uh, you know, by the environment. Um, and, you know, this wasn't even a case of rain and salt spray. I mean, it was, you know, a fall afternoon, um, you know, and it was just a heavy rain, a heavy downpour uh, that caused the, the sensor to become obscured to the point where it could not guide the vehicle. So uh, in general, you know, it, that, that part of the system worked, worked pretty well. I thought the, the lane control was not quite as confident feeling as the Cadillac. Um, you know, one advantage the Cadillac has, it, it only, it does have, the Cadillac uses a, a monovision camera, a single camera looking down the road, but it also uses the two cameras in the side mirrors that are looking down at the lanes to help with the lane centering. And I thought the Cadillac did a little bit better job of, you know, consistently keeping the car in the middle of the lane and, and tracking the lane uh, really well. But, um, you know, and the Mercedes occasionally wandered a little bit and um, when it uh, you know when you got went we're going through a curve you know you could feel it kind of you know wandering a little bit back and side to side uh, as it negotiated the curve but um, the Mercedes does have some interesting capabilities that the Cadillac does not including automatic lane change so you know as you're driving down the road if you want to change lanes all you have to do is just tap the the turn signal in whichever direction you want to go, and you know as long as your hands are you know just lightly on the wheel, you know just enough to, you know so it senses that you're there. Um, you know when it's clear, when it's all clear, the car will just slide over one lane, you know to the left or to the right, whichever direction you indicated with the turn signal. So that was um, you know that that part works well, uh, but then it also has some other really neat features um, that the super cruise system doesn't have or any other system for that matter um, because it it like super cruise um, mercedes is using um, 
the the maps, the mapping system in the car as a long range sensor. So it's looking down the road at what's coming up. And, you know, like like the Cadillac, you know, if there's a curve, you know, in the road ahead of you, it will, um, you know, depending on what your what your set speed is, it can automatically, you know, slow you down a little bit if, if needed, uh, you know, to make sure you can get through that curve safely uh, and then resume whatever your set speed was. Um, but it also does some other cool things. Like, uh, first of all, the intelligent drive is not geofenced to highways. So you can actually use it in, in the cities uh, because it is a hands-on system. So they allow you to use it even in, in urban environments. And um, if you're driving along, if you've got the um, intelligent drive turned on, and uh, you tap the turn signal. You know, if you're on city streets, you know, if you tap the turn signal, it'll look at the map, look at look ahead at the map for where the next road is, the next corner. Um, you know, so if you tap the right turn signal, it'll look for the next street on your right. And as you approach it, it will automatically slow the car down, just as just as you would, just as a human driver would. Ideally, um, and <laughs> who slows down to take turns, <laughs> bring it to a, a reasonable speed so you can get around the corner without having to touch the brake pedal. Um, and then as you come around the corner, it'll automatically resume whatever your set speed was. Um, and similarly, I mean, you know, around around this area here, you know, in the Ann Arbor area, there's a lot of roundabouts in this area now. Um, and, you know, if you're driving down the road and coming up to a roundabout, the system will detect. And I, I've got a video that I'm putting together that'll uh, show show you some of this stuff. Um, but as you're approaching a roundabout, the, the car will automatically slow down to a speed that can get you through the roundabout and then resume your, your preset speed on the other side. So that was that was really cool. Um, you know, and it's 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 a cool use of the, the technology, combining the maps with the sensors uh, and everything else, you know, to uh, reduce some of the workload. Now, you know, whether you actually need any of this. You know, is debatable. You know, because I mean, you still have to pay attention. You still have to have your hands on the wheel. So yeah, but I, I don't want to interrupt. I mean, go, go finish, ahead. Finish your thought. Because <laughs> um, I the E four hundred coupe that I talked about last week, and and we'll talk about a little bit more this week. Uh, also had, I think it had intelligent drive, although it's not on the the Monroni as intelligent drive. Um, yeah, it has it's listed as drive pilot on on the E class. What are they? Um, yeah, and so I'm not seeing drive pilot here either. But it had all that stuff. Like it might not have done the lane changes, but it had the suite of you know lane keeping assist and mm-hmm. uh, all the different you know dynamic cruise control, and um, it had the, the the actual like steering assist as well. Um, and I found that it it did wander in the lanes. Like it made me feel like, is it going to pay attention and nudge me back into the center? It wasn't sort of like as responsive or, or quick to react as uh, I would have liked, um, and as the BMW the week before. But I also found that yes, it requires your attention. The whole thing. It doesn't require as much of your attention though. You can sort of slack off a little bit, and that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. I mean, if you, you know, if if you still have to pay attention, but it lets you slack off, you know, is that a good thing? I'm not convinced it is. No, I, I don't think it is. 
you know, but yeah, because, you know, if you if all of a sudden you do have to take over full control again, you know, and it's the same thing, even more so, you know, as you approach uh, a level three system like what Audi's putting on the new A8, um, which, you know, lets you take your attention away from the road entirely. You know, it's a hands off system and, and you don't even have to watch the road like as you do with with the Cadillac system. Uh, I, I just I'm. I'm more and more convinced that that's a bad idea. Uh, you know, I, I like the driver assist. I think, you know, adaptive cruise control is great. You know, I think, uh, you know, a lane keeping system, you know, is fine. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, as, as we start to nudge past that, you know, I, I think we're, you know, getting into that uncanny valley. Uh, I'm just not convinced it's a great idea. Um, you know, I, mean, I think, you know, the stuff that the Mercedes system does, it does really well, um, but it's just, uh, just in general, you know. And this is not a knock on Mercedes, you know, but it's a knock on the industry as a whole. You know, I'm, I'm more inclined to think that the approach that uh, Waymo is taking and and also that Ford is taking, you know, of going, you know, keeping it, you know, level one systems, you know, advanced driver assist systems, and then going straight to level four systems that require no human intervention. Um, I think that that's probably a better idea. But, you know, I understand the position that Mercedes is in too, you know, we're, we're talking in particular about the autonomous or, or automated tech that's in it. But overall, like it's still, this is an S class and, and I had an E class and like, these are, these are lovely automobiles. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, well, actually one of the really, one of the greatest things I, I realized about this thing after I'd been driving it for uh, about five days, um, earlier this week, it, you know, it, for the first time it got really cold here. Um, and actually, you know, uh, oh. down below freezing overnight. A I know, times. I know where you're going and I like it. <laughs> um, you know, it's not at all uncommon for cars to have heated seats these days. Um, you know, you know most mainstream models have offer at least as an option heated seats and, and in some cases even heated rear seats. But this S class was the first time I've had a car with heated armrests. Yes. So it's it's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I get in this car and I, I press the seat heater button on the on the door and uh, after after a half a minute or so, I, I start feeling warmth in my arms and my in my elbow or in my elbows. And it's like, whoa, what is this? And, you know, that's that's one of those really nice little details that you can put into a car, you know, when you're charging one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for it. Yeah. Or, or 90 in the case of, of the E400 coupe. Um, and they, they so they're they're great cars. I just I, we were talking about sort of the. The differentiator now is is this tech suite um, among so many of these these high end cars, because otherwise we'd be talking about a BMW with X Drive or an Audi with uh, Quattro, or you know the 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 Mercedes with with Formatic, and and that's about all the sort of the technical mechanical bits you can you can really differentiate. I mean the engines are all pretty similar; they're all turbocharged gas engines of some sort or another. It, there's there's just like less daylight in between all the varieties and really the tech suites is is what separates these cars and so while we may think it's not a great idea like they have to offer this stuff and i don't i don't know whether they like how, how do you back out of it i don't know that i necessarily agree with that 
um, you know, I, it's, you know, it's one of those cases where, you know, just because you can do something, it doesn't mean you should, you know, just because they have the technical capability to do what they're doing. I'm not, uh, the more I drive these vehicles with, with these partially automated systems, the less convinced I am that it's, uh, that it's a great idea. Um, well, maybe, just, maybe we're learning that, uh, you know, all together. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause I agree with you. Like this and the systems are getting better and better and better. Oh, they, um, they absolutely are. I mean, you know, I mean this, I, it, you know, the, because the differences between intelligent drive and, and super cruise are enough, you know, there, you know, there's some overlap, but there's also a lot of distinctions there. You know, some of the, the things that, Super Cruise does it does really well. And the things that Intelligent Drive does, you know, it does really, really well. Um, and it, I'd be hard pressed to say that one is definitively better than the other um, because they don't do the same things. You know, so it's it's hard to to say. And and each of them have you know their their limitations, and it's those limitations that I find troubling, and that I think a lot of customers would will potentially find troubling uh, in terms of, you know, it's like, you know, I'm paying this money for these features and yet it can't really do what it is I want it to do, which is just to take over the driving task for me. You know, I still have to pay, even though it's a little bit less attention, I still have to pay attention. And that the fact that you're paying that little bit less attention potentially means that when something does happen, you might end up being in more trouble. Um, so it, I, I don't know. I, I'm, it's, it's a, it's a challenging question. And I, I don't know, I don't know that I know the right answer. I see. So here's where I get a little hung up on too, is the, um, and the E400, it, it was a 9,300, 9,350 for the premium three package that included all that stuff. I think you could probably hire a part-time driver for, for <laughs> ninety-three fifty. Well, you know, and that—that's—that's that's the thing. You know, um, you know, Lincoln, you know, is uh, in several markets now is offering you know the chauffeur service, where you know on those occasions when you don't want to drive, you know, on a date night or something like that, you can call up you know the you know the black label concierge and and have them send you over a driver that they have vetted, you know, and you know that you're paying for um and they will come to your house and they will drive you around to wherever it is you want to go yeah I, I think I, I think i'd actually rather use that that's not a bad idea right like and then, I, and then I, don't know. I can sit in the back in this beautiful reclining seat and you know that it's like it's like a you know like a business class seat on an airliner uh in the back of this s class uh you know when my wife and i went you know we went up north on sunday uh you know she decided she wanted to sit in the back uh which she almost never does because she could recline and put up the footrest and turn on the seat heater and the massage system in in the back seat and there was a a screen back there and she could sit back there and do her knitting and and listen to whatever (laughs) media she wanted to that sounds delightful yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, and, and so like, let's talk about that, because that's, I think, uh, something that we're missing is these are, I, I wonder oh, how many I people. Forgot, I forgot the refrigerator. 
Oh, that has a refrigerator. Yeah, you put a what, what bottle I, of wine in. It was funny when I when I picked I picked up the car uh, from the airport when I returned from uh, my trip to California last week, and uh, I opened up the trunk to put my my bag in there, and I noticed this this big box in the middle of the trunk, which I assumed initially was, you know, some kind of giant subwoofer. Uh, but it, I realized later, you know, when I was crawling around inside the car uh, to take some pictures, you know, I saw the, you know, it, ha- it has the center console down the middle. You know, it's a, so it's a four seat configuration. So there's no, there's only two seats in the back. And I, I saw this drawer and this door between the two rear seats and I opened it up and there was another door behind it. And I realized I opened it up and it was a, you know, it was a refrigerator big enough to hold three champagne bottles. Which you promptly filled it up with, I hope. Uh, well, I, I unfortunately did not have any champagne bottles handy, but, um, you know, it, it's it's one you know, I and mean, it's just all this luxury in this car, you know, and it would be nice to you know be able to sit in the you know have somebody else do the driving, you know, in in lieu of having a fully automated uh, system, to have somebody else do the driving so I could sit in the back and relax and enjoy this luxury. Yeah, I that was I think what left me the most astounded and sort of where I was going was I wonder how many people who buy or lease these cars understand how much they're actually getting like it it's a lot of car i had the opportunity to put the the e400 up on the the lift at my my brother-in-law's uh place i, I just wanted to see sort of how they because it's it's not a huge car i wanted to see how they crammed everything in um and boy did they cram stuff in there y- yeah it's i mean it's but it's still like you know we talk about the german cars being you know, just beautifully engineered you can't see any of it unless you get under it, and then you see all of it, and it it is a, a masterpiece. Just it's hidden, you know. It's got it's got underbody trays all the way back. It's all aero, you know. There's there's just plastic covers on, uh, over most of everything. There's little cutouts for you know the catalytic converters so they don't burn the thing up and and stuff. But you know it's very uh, impressively packaged. You know you've got with the formatic cars, you've got the transmission and the transfer case. There's a there's a front drive shaft just sort of tucked up there and um then the the way the uh it you know drives the differential and the differential goes across right you know right below the engine and just all of those the details you know this aluminum subframes and you know extrusions welded to the uh you know cast or forged uh pieces and it's just the the dirty bits are are really really good really clever um I don't think that's ever appreciated anymore because uh, these are luxury cars and especially, you know, the S five sixty for sure. Like that's not just your sort of like, I want an S class. I'm going to buy the S class. I can, you know, just easily, most easily get into like, that's a, that's a serious S class purchase. You, you got to know what that is to get it. Um, and you know, the E 400 coupe again, like you've got to kind of know what it is. Um, or, or want it. And I think, you, you know, you want both of those maybe for the style uh, and the, the other sort of more opulent stuff. But I, yeah, I don't think that the sort of underlying um, German techie impressiveness <laughs> ever really comes out. Well, especially, you know, on, on modern cars, you know, I mean, if you open the hood, you know, you usually have this massive cover over the engine. So you can't even see the engine and appreciate the, the technology that's there, um, you know, and as you said, you know, even if you crawl underneath, you know, everything's covered with, 
you know, with with uh, body work, you know, to minimize the aerodynamic drag, and you, you just you you don't you don't realize how much amazing work went into creating these things you know how much effort you know engineering effort and design effort went into putting all this together and then you know if you if you ever visit you know the factory where these things are built you know, or actually visit any assembly plant you know, any modern assembly plant you know and you watch how they build cars you know, i mean you know you've got tens of thousands of parts that come together uh and you know it, it Somehow, you know, uh, unless you're in a Tesla factory, you know, they all come together at just the right time along the <laughs> line and get assembled together into this piece of machinery that that works at the end of the line. You know, and usually, you know, you can ship it off to the dealer from there without also shipping part shipping seats and display screens and, and other parts you know, separately for the dealer to finish putting building the car at the at the at the uh at, at the out, at the, <laughs> the retail outlet, um, <laughs> that's mean. That's I mean. Uh, hey, you know what? It may be mean, but it's absolutely true, and it's. I frankly think it's well deserved. You know, it's you know, building building complex machinery is hard. It's not. Yeah, man, make it. It's not a trivial thing. You know, and. I I have done software and I've done hardware, and I know software is difficult too, but um, you know. It's it's far more complex to build, uh, to put together something as sophisticated as a modern car and have it work right the first time than it is to do uh, to do a lot of the software stuff that gets put out there, which, you know, it, when that stuff doesn't work, you know, it's it doesn't really it's not that big a deal. But, you know, a car has to work uh, or, you know, people's lives are at stake. Yeah, well, I know. I think that if you if you think from the software approach, that seems to be to me sort of the exact approach that Tesla has been taking is design ship test. Yes, <laughs> Which, exactly. You know, I've dealt with lots of software like that. Um, yeah, but like, I I was just astounded by it. Even for ninety thousand dollars, like looking around, and I'm sure at one hundred and fifty, if you start to really poke around the S class you'll come away with a better understanding of why it's that expensive uh, beyond the fact that it's, it's a, you know, a very high end luxury car. Um, you know, you see evidence of it being worth that, um, when, when you start to poke at it. Uh, at least I did. Um, and it, it, it's, it's great to drive. I was, you know, I, it got me thinking driving the, the E 400 coupe made me think about, you know, what Lincoln could do, uh, to, to differentiate itself. And this is not the right move for Lincoln right now because th it's not where any of the buyers are in the market. But, you know, just thinking back how in the past they had had like the LSC, which was a version of the Mustang, you know, now there's just such a much better Mustang. You know, I wonder what Lincoln could do if they, they wanted to make, a, you know, a car based on the Mustang, but much more differentiated than the LSC was from the Mustang. But, you know, a, a coupe Lincoln that's a, just a high end luxury coupe. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if they if they wanted to use the S five fifty platform as the basis for a Lincoln coupe or even a Lincoln sedan, you know, I think that you know they could come up with something really special. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's you know 
very unlikely to happen um, today, you know, just because the market has moved so far away from those kinds of cars. You know, and, you know, even if you if you look at the, the sales volumes, you know, for, um, you know, Mercedes and, and Audi and BMW, you know, for their cars versus their SUVs, you know, it's it's all going to SUVs and, you know, people are abandoning the car platforms. Yeah, and it, I would be thrilled and very curious to see what it would would be, uh, but it's yeah, definitely not what they should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a, it would be a bad move. The, the car guys, we would we would love them. The only way they would get more love from us is if we if they were to make a a wagon, um, which is also not not going to happen. Um, but yeah, you know, Mercedes uh, Mercedes makes a good car. <laughs> It's it's hard to really find fault, and they still a, make wagons too. Yeah, Pretty good they, wagons. They the sure do. The E class wagon is is awesome. Um, how did you how did you feel about? You said it didn't feel all that powerful, although it's you know well, it's no, under I, five second to sixty car. It's, yeah, that's no, I mean it, it it feel it's you know it's powerful you know and it feels it you know it's um what but think about uh, four hundred and sixty three horsepower five hundred and sixteen foot pounds of torque, you know it's got it's got plenty of performance, um you know in a car this size you know it's not going to. Let's put it this way: it doesn't feel like the Alfa Romeo Giulia you know that just leaps off the line. Um, you know, but it, it moves with authority, you know, so uh, you, you never felt lacking for power. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's it's clearly it's targeted at a very different audience. And it's, um, you know, it's someone that wants that effortless uh, power. You know, when you step on it, it's just going to go, you know, and it's it, it it's not, you know, it's not going to, you know, throw your head back against the headrest, you know, and crush your brain, you know, the way a Tesla would, um, you know, cause it's a mere 4.8 seconds from zero to 60, as opposed to, you know, half that for the, for a model S with ludicrous mode. Um, but you can use it consistently and, and it just, it just works everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I think that probably mirrors my impression of the, um, the E 400 powertrain Cause it's a, it's a similar engine in that it's a, you know turbocharged, and I think it's a hot V as well. I know the V8 that you drove was, was a hot V um, for you know, quick response and better mm-hmm. packaging. Um, and so in the E400, it's a three-liter bi-turbo V6. I, on paper, it's it's not that powerful. It's only like 329 horsepower and and 354. You, you need, you need to torque. get the uh, the AMG E43. Uh, yeah, absolutely. To about another, you know, another hundred horsepower. And I, I expected, you know, with twin turbos on a three liter engine, I would expect it to be more like four hundred horsepower. But it, like it, it was, it's no slouch. It, it definitely didn't didn't feel like it was uh, weak in any way. I did also have the perspective of coming off a week with an M five fifty I, which is very powerful. <laughs> that yeah. was, you know. It, this is a fine for ad, it's adequate you don't need to ask you don't need to know the number um yeah and it's the the, the 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 absolute numbers are you know irrelevant you know when you're when you're in this this kind of market segment yeah and it it it's just it's uh it's lovely to drive it's not quite as confident in it's it's sporty modes i did find that like sport plus was just way too touchy um did the did the s550 have or 560 have that 
Do you have the dynamic modes? Oh yeah, it has dynamic modes, um, and this one also has the had the uh, uh, magic sky control, um, which is uh, you've got you know the the panoramic uh, moonroof on the back, uh, but you can the uh, the back section of it uh, you can alter the uh, the transparency of the glass, um, so it, it's like on the uh, the Boeing seven eight seven windows, uh, where instead of having shades on the glass, there's an electrochromic coating on there. You can uh, change the opacity of it, um, so you can make it darker or lighter, you know, depending on how much light you want to let through. I mean, that's just that's a five thousand dollar option. <sighs> uh, yeah, some of the prices of this stuff is breathtaking. Um, yeah. The, well, and, and and this is before you even get into some of the you know the custom build stuff you know you you can you can go through the the catalog and pick all these cool things on there you know like the electrically heated windshield which again um does, does a really nice job of clearing the clearing ice frost off the windshield very rapidly um you know the the refrigerator you know you've got all these all these cool features on there um the Burmeister high-end 3D surround sound system for 6,400 bucks, and then then from there you can go crazy. You know, you can go to your dealer and say, you know, I just don't quite like the hue of the leather on these seats. You know, I want something, you know, just a couple of shades darker on the Pantone scale. You know, or lighter, or, you know, whatever. Or you know, I want I want a leather that you know comes from a particular type of cow, and they'll happily do that for you. You know, for some undisclosed amount of money you know that's 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 one of the things about buying cars from the the big german manufacturers is they will you know whatever you like they will they will get it for you for the for a price <laughs> yeah um so it's, it's hard to walk away from a week with the mercedes and, and not be anything but you know impressed with both the, the vehicle and the outfitting um and the insane amount of money <laughs> oh and i do have to mention one one other thing that i also very much appreciated um mercedes does offer support for both apple carplay and android auto unlike bmw who only supports apple carplay um and uh mercedes is uh the only the second manufacturer i've seen uh after honda that mirrors the uh, when you're using Android Auto um, and Google Maps, it will mirror the navigation prompts in the head-up display. Oh, that's nice. So you don't you don't have to look over at the central screen. You can just keep looking down the road, and the prompts will be right there in front of you. Oh, you know what? Um, how did you find Command uh, to use, or whatever they're calling it now? Their 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 yeah, system with Command My, yeah. minus an A, I think. I think, yeah, I think they dropped the A. Um, you know, it's it's fine. Um, you know, I think I would probably prefer, you know, you've got that. Uh, there's the touch controller that overhangs the rotary knob. Yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah, and I think I would prefer it without that, you know, and just have the rotary knob there because I can do everything in the rotary knob. I mean, the touch controller that overhangs it, you know, gives you a surface, you know, to use your finger to, you know, do your address entry and things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, the the the, the the handwriting recognition works fine. It's just it's slower than, you know, just twisting the knob. Um and, you know, when I'm using Android Auto, you know, I just push the knob over to the right. Um, and then, you know, that pulls up the Google voice controls and I can do everything vastly, vastly quicker anyway. So, um, 
Yeah, I'm the in general the command stuff is fine. You know, I would just lose the touch part of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I I didn't like the. It, maybe it's just the physical design of that that wheel and the control pad and and stuff. Um, it, it didn't seem as easy to use as as MMI or iDrive and uh, the system Mercedes itself. Does give you the option to disable the touch part of it, so the the pad is there. Yeah, but uh, it just it doesn't respond to touch inputs. You know, then you can just rest your hand on it and you can use the the, the rotary controller. Yeah, and I think that's what I did um, because the, you wind up resting your hand on that pad anyway when you're using the rotary controller, and it just it, I don't know. Um, it it didn't seem as intuitive as the other systems. Like it almost feels like it's going to step back. I used to like command more. Um, I don't want to ramble about it. I just you know, figured we'd try to touch on all the points of the. Yeah. Very fancy cars that are full of like everything. <laughs> um, and some. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's return to the idea, though, of being driven and uh, having the car uh, do the driving because you can actually experience that if you go to Phoenix. Or maybe you can't experience it, but you can see it in action. <laughs> Well, you'll be, able to, you'll be able to experience it fairly soon. So, you know, as we talked about last week, you know, I was in California at the beginning part of last week with Waymo, um, you know, at their test track uh, in the Central Valley to experience riding around in one of their Chrysler Pacifica vans with no one sitting in the in the driver's seat. And uh, so the, the timing of that event, you know, we as we now know, um, you know, with, uh, came just before they made an announcement this week in Portugal on uh, Tuesday in Portugal um, that they were going to start um, deploying their uh, those vans in the Phoenix area. They've been testing them in, in the Fe in the greater Phoenix area for about a year now uh, with you know with a safety driver in the front seat um, to keep an eye on things and you know take over if needed. And they're now confident enough with the performance of those vehicles in that area that they're now starting they've now started to run them without a safety driver up front. Uh, there's still a Waymo employee in the second row seat uh, where there's a kill switch uh, to you know to shut down the vehicle if, if need be. Uh, but uh, there's no one in the in the front, you know, the, the left front seat anymore. And they're going to be testing like that for the next couple of months. And then they're going to start picking up passengers um, on their ride hailing service uh, in that area, starting in the specifically in the Chandler area and then gradually expanding over time to cover the entire greater Phoenix area. So, I mean, this is just another step. Like, I think it has to happen. They've been doing all kinds of simulation. I'm sure it's, you know, the amount of miles that these their systems have covered is, is pretty uh, deep already. Is this just the only thing that you can, can do once you, you know, once you drive all those simulated miles and even the, you know, with, on a, in a controlled environment, actual driving, like now you have to put this stuff out in actual reality, you know, put it into chaos and see how it learns and how, how well it's already learned. Like it, there's nowhere else for it to go really. Right. Like this is the yeah, logical well, next I mean, step. They, they've been, you know, they've been running their vehicles in chaos for several years now, you know, in Mountain View uh, and in Phoenix and uh, Portland and, and Austin. <clears throat> so they, you know, they, they have been testing them on real roads and the results they've got, you know, they've accumulated, about, I think about 3.5 million miles 
of real world testing along with a couple of billion miles of um, simulated testing. And between all of that, they are confident enough in the performance of the system, at least in the kinds of conditions they're going to experience in Phoenix, for example, where, you know, they don't really have winter, you know, it doesn't snow there. Um, it only rain, it rains only sporadically, you know, at certain times of the year. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about pretty much ideal conditions for this type of vehicle to operate in, uh, at least from a, a, an environmental standpoint, they're fairly confident that it's going to work there. And so that's why they're starting to do their testing there. And they'll, you know, they'll see what happens, you know, they'll keep monitoring it and, and, you know, looking at how the vehicles behave, and also at how the people riding in them uh, interact with the vehicles and the user experience, uh, which is one of the things they talked a lot about last week, uh, was user experience and building trust uh, with the riders in these vehicles. Um, so we'll we'll see how that works out over the next year. Yeah, well, that's going to be pretty important. I mean, the, one of the key points that I think uh, Alex Roy has brought up is like, you know, we'll know this stuff has arrived when you're willing to put your kid on it without yeah. you there, right? Um, and I mean, that's a that's a, a good point. Um, it also seems like all the things that Waymo is talking about, you know, how they're, they're going to, um, you know, use the vehicles for, like, commuting to work or getting home from a night out or you know, taking kids to school, like, I just sounds like public transit like pop-up public transit to me <laughs> well you know and that's that's the thing you know with as we start to deploy these automated mobility services you know the, the thing about public transit is it works really well um you know in cities you know where there are you know where there are certain high density routes you know, it works great for high density routes yeah you know, so where you've got a lot of people going from going to the same locations all the time, then it makes economic sense because you've got enough scale from the passengers. The problem you tend to have in a lot of cities is you end up, you know, because you want to serve as many people as possible, you end up, you tend to end up with a bunch of routes that are underutilized. And so the, the cost of operating those routes is, you know, it doesn't pull in enough fare revenue to ju to justify right. it, but you know because of the nature of the transportation system we have today, you know we need to offer those options. So by uh, you know by bringing in smaller vehicles, you know van sized vehicles where you can have still have multiple riders, and then you know even smaller pod type vehicles at, at some point. Um, you, you add extra flexibility to the system. And I think, you know, one of the things that absolutely has to happen as we have companies starting to deploy automated mobility services is, and I, I talked about this, uh, yesterday, uh, I was on a panel at a conference, uh, here in, here in Detroit on, um, uh, it was a legal conference, um, and talking about the, the, uh, the global outlook for automated vehicles, and one of the things that one of the th th things I brought up was that we need to have start putting in place frameworks for how these automated mobility services are going to 
fit into the rest of the transportation ecosystem in cities. You know, cities need to start laying down these these frameworks um, because these systems need to be coordinated with the mass transit um, systems because they're, you know, places like New York and Chicago and, and L.A. and San Francisco, there are certain routes that you want to have mass transit. You know, that's that's what's going to work best. You don't you don't want to completely replace mass transit with individual vehicles for a lot of routes. But for the other routes, you know, for, you know, to fill in that first mile, last mile and fill in, you know, uh, what, you know, what uh, Oliver Hobsaday from Chariot likes to call uh, transit deserts, where there's just not enough people to justify a mass transit route. You need different size vehicles to fill that in, fill in those gaps and provide the full coverage uh, to all the different places where people need to get to. Yeah, and I mean, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and it, it also makes it a lot more affordable to do it with this kind of uh, technology and infrastructure than something, you know, more more uh, traditional. You know, like light rail has been this impossible dream for, for so long. And, and, you know, it's just not viable in, in the places where it's, it's actually even wanted. Um, you know, a lot of times it just you can't make the numbers work. Um, and then the timelines stretch out, too. Like, you Waymo could, or, you know, any of the other companies that are also working on this stuff, that you can go in there basically with the technology in, in a very short span of time and, and it would be up and running, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So that's, that's very attractive. Um, I, it, it, what you said about, you know, cities having to figure out how this stuff is going to interface with the, the rest of us who prefer our chaos, um, you know, sort of analog, I guess, <laughs> Uh, you know, Bob Lutz lays out a very dark vision as well. And I know Bob Lutz is, is Bob Lutz, but he, he also, to a large degree, he, he does know what he's talking about, um, or he at least speculates from a point of, of uh, unique understanding. Um, where, you know, he's, he's been saying basically like driving has like another 20 years, and that's, that's really about it, uh, like self-driving. Do you, do, you, do you share that dark vision? Um, I think... Certainly for uh, urban, you know, driving in urban areas, I, th- I think he's probably right. You know, I think, you know, by the mid 2030s, um, you know, you will have probably very few people driving individual vehicles in, in dense urban environments. I mean, it just it won't make sense. You know, it it won't make economic sense. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's just not a fun thing to do anyway. I mean, even if no, you it love sucks. To drive, I mean, I, I love to drive <laughs> and I hate driving in in you know, in dense urban centers. I mean, it's, just, it's a terrible experience from, you know, from what it costs to park, you know, to what, what it costs to, um, you know, to ensure, you know, if you live in those areas to insure the vehicles and, and operate the vehicles, it just doesn't make any sense. And so it, I absolutely agree that, you know, the, the sooner we can make that transition safely, you know, and that's the key is we we've got to do it safely and we've got to coordinate all these all these pieces. You know, I don't think that I, I think I don't think we can just take a completely laissez faire attitude to how this stuff gets deployed. I think I think we really need to work to coordinate it as much as possible 
um, you know, so that we're making the, the best use of the infrastructure we have. Because if we if we take a completely hands off approach to you know how the how this stuff is deployed, you're going to end up making the, the congestion problems so much worse. You know, if you suddenly have, you know, fleets of, you know, tens of thousands of these vehicles descending on a city and they're all trying to stop, you know, here, there and everywhere to pick up and drop people off. Um, you know, it, it, it has the potential to, to make the problems way worse. So we need to find ways to, to make all these pieces work together. Uh, but I think I think that can be do- that can be done as long as, you know, Local leaders, you know, have the the backbone to to stand up to some of these companies and say, "Look, this is what we need to do," and the, the companies are willing to recognize that, you know, if we want to be part of this ecosystem, you know, we need to we all need to cooperate and work together. Yeah, and I, I, I think we're kind of nibbling around the edges of what's going to be really as big a shift as. You know, going from horses to cars was in, in terms of cities. Uh, soon, you know. Like, yeah, think of and think of how our cities are built. Don't around ride cars. horses; they just don't ride them around in cities. You know, and it's yeah. going to be the same thing with cars. You know, out, you know, on the countryside. You know, I mean, people will still be able to you know take their cars out you know, you know out on country roads and and drive around. And there's going to be lots of places where you know where um, you know autonomous mobility just doesn't make sense. Uh, but you know, for for a lot of locations, and you know, there's a lot of places where it's going to take a while before those vehicles can really be you know a viable alternative, because they, you know they're going to be expensive, um, you know, and uh, you know, the, it, um, servicing these vehicles is you know is going to take you know people with some skills. Uh, you know, just yesterday, um, uh, or maybe it was the day before. Excuse me. They launched a, an autonomous service, you know, pilot program in Las Vegas using a, a Navia Arma shuttle. You know, same thing that we've got a couple of them running here in Ann Arbor on the University of Michigan North Campus, um, shuttling people around. And within an hour of it starting operation, a truck backed into it and it did, you know, <laughs> did you know, relatively minor damage to it. But, you know, it took the vehicle offline for a couple of days, you know, so they could go through and test and and. and recalibrate all the sensors and everything so it could work properly and you know you know little fender benders like that you know have the potential to be fairly disruptive to these vehicles um you know in the in the near term until we figure out how to how to work with them yeah well i i know that sometimes we feel a little negative about this this stuff or at least i come off as a little negative about it but um you know i'm I'm encouraged that Waymo's putting their their stuff out there, and um, you know they're, they're they're making the next step. And I, I think honestly, of all the companies that are working on it, they've probably been the most, if if not if not the most, one of the most sort of serious, head down, uh, systematic, you know, really carefully uh, approaching the the problem. Um, Certainly, of the the non automotive companies, I think they have they have been. By far the most diligent in terms of making sure that they get it right and not rolling out the stuff until they are really confident that it's going to work. Uh, you know, and you know, I I know John Kraftjack, their CEO, and you know, I I trust that he's going to do the right thing and that they're not going to put anything out there and start picking up passengers until they they know that it's going to be safe. Yeah. 
So good. I uh, we'll, we'll move on now. We'll have some fun. Is <laughs> apparently the 2019 Corvette ZR1 has uh, leaked, um, and it's not the mid-engine Corvette that we've been promised since the 70s. Well, late I 60s. Think, I think that this, uh, by all appearances, this is probably the last gasp of the front-engine Corvette. Um, you know the. This, you know, this is the last great, you know, traditional vet that we're going to see. Um, and this is going to be apparently unveiled on Saturday as we, you know, two days from now as we record this at the uh, Dubai Auto Show. Um, that's I mean, that's the perfect place to unveil it because it's hideous and they like <laughs> ugly cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the front end, the front end is pretty aggressive, um, but you know b- basically what they've done is they've taken a Z06, you know, and they've turned it up to twelve, um, you know, because the Z06 was already kind of at eleven, um, right. you know, so it's you know an updated an upgraded version of the uh, um, the six point two liter supercharged V8, you know, with another hundred horsepower, um, you know, and they're calling it um, cooling. calling yeah they're calling it the LT5 now. Which right. it's, it's not an LT5. Thank well, you. <laughs> you know, I mean, they they reuse, they've reused, you know, all their engine codes numerous times. I mean, you know, the the current LT4 is not the LT4 they were building in the you know late 60s, early 70s either. You know, it's a very different engine, too. I know. I know. But nothing means anything anymore. <laughs> Did it ever mean anything? I mean, they're, no. they're all they're all no. just arbitrary codes. You know, it's all but you know that's all marketing stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with them calling this engine the LT five. I I don't really either. I just when I think of LT five, I think of that you know that original that lo- the Lotus that, designed Mercury Marine built. Yeah, in Cam. And I, yeah. Right, and I I was gonna say the original ZR one engine, but that's not the original ZR one. Right, the the original ZR one engine was a normally aspirated, you know, big four barrel carburetor, uh, big block. I think it was a big block, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was yeah. the early sixties, right? It was the. It was uh, a s- no, it was like 69, 68, 69. Oh, Was ZR one? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was probably like one of the first Mark fours then. Yeah, or you know, I, uh, I don't C- know. three as a C three. Right, but uh, I'm sorry, the V8 was a Mark IV V8. Uh, no, that would have been. Or was that later? Uh, well, if it was a big block, it's not. It was, you know, that was a first generation big block. So, anyway, the the details are are unimportant. <laughs> I like how we just dove right into but, the history. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, the thing is, this engine is putting out, you know, twice as much it has twice as much power as that last LT5, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As, as as impressive as that engine was, you know, the first, you know, twin overhead cam, thirty two valve V eight in a in a Corvette, uh, you know, I mean, it had half the output of this thing, um, and I have no doubt that you know that this will be far and away the fastest Corvette ever built, right up until they launch the mid engine Corvette. You know, maybe as soon as the Detroit Auto Show, uh, we'll see. I, so I'm not the first person to have this thought, but um, yeah, I'm a real fan of the front engine Corvette. And beyond that, like I'm a, I think about other cars that are, you know, sort of in this realm. And I'm a real fan of front engine Ferraris, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that they they'd split the lineup and have the front engine Corvette and the, the mid engine Corvette? I, I think that's actually a distinct possibility. Um it, I, because you know the thing is, if they if they shift to a mid-engine Corvette, which you know, I mean, we've seen more than enough spy photos of the prototypes. You know that, that I think it's 
you know, it's a foregone conclusion. There will be a mid-engine Corvette. And, you know, after all these many decades, Don Sherman will finally be right that there's a mid-engine Corvette. Uh, <laughs> you know what? If done. you keep saying, right. It's the broken clock thing, man. Yeah, like, right. Sooner or later, he's going to be right about it. And um, in his defense, I think they've probably been toying with this off and on. Yeah, absolutely. Since, they, they have built know. so many prototype mid-engine vets over the last 60 years. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's a reason why the rumor won't die, because they keep building them. They just never sell them. Um, yeah. I mean, so. and, and it's easy to get confused, too, because, like, at some point, I'm sure the Fiero mules could have been mistaken for, like, some sort of Corvette. It's, you know, like, just... Mm-hmm. I don't, Maybe not. I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> they were a lot smaller. Yeah, that's uh, but, true. They were. Um, but, you know, um, yeah, actually, this is something you know, we were actually talking. I was talking about with uh, um, actually last year. Uh, yeah, last year um, at the um, uh, the Concours of America uh, here in uh, Plymouth, Michigan, uh, with uh, with Don and uh, a few other folks, um, when it when we st- first started seeing the first uh, spy photos of the prototype mid-engine vets, uh, you know, and Don, you know, Don was absolutely positively convinced that they were going to do it this time, um, you know, <laughs> and and I, th- I think I was talking with Mark Phelan uh, from the Detroit Free Press, uh, and. You know, I think between the two of us, I think you know we came to the conclusion that they, if if they did the mid-engine vet, they would almost certainly continue to build front-engine vets as well, um, <clears throat> because the thing is, you're never going to be able to sell twenty-five, thirty thousand mid-engine Corvettes a year. I mean, I think the the market is just not going to be that big, uh, because it's going to be a much more expensive car. You know, that's that's something you're going to sell maybe two or three thousand a year, if that, maybe less. Um, you know, I mean, Ford, you know, is only doing 250 GTs a year, uh, for a four year run. Um, you know, so the, the mid engine Corvette, I, I see, you know, as being this, you know, this high end, you know, so for the first time you're going to have, you know, two distinct models within the Corvette lineup, you know, you're going to have the mid engine version, which is your, your, your super premium one which will form the basis of their next generation um gt car that they run at le mans and an imsa and then the the front engine corvettes you know will continue uh continue probably you know at, at least for several more years if not longer because that's where that's where the volume is going to be um you know that and you know there's there's clearly you know i mean if they can sell 25 30,000 corvettes a year there's clearly demand for a car of that type um and you're never going to be able to do you know a mid-engine vet for you know 60 65,000 dollars like you can do with the the base you know front engine car yeah it's certainly not you're gonna to have to sacrifice something, and we're all tired of sacrificing our Corvettes. Thank you. You're gonna make, you're gonna make them better. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's you know from uh, aside from you know whatever you might think of the styling, I don't think there's much sacrifice in this uh, in the ZR1. Um, you know, the racing shell seats that are in there um, sounds like it's actually going to be a bit heavier um, because of some of the extra hardware. But um, you know, there's more than enough power to compensate for that. And these things certainly seem to be running very quickly in all the the videos we've seen of the prototypes running around the Nürburgring for the last six months. Yeah, well, and the extra cooling is good because that was sort of a sticking point. Um, I mean, it's this is just uh, 
I'm sure it's going to put up numbers. I, I'm okay. I'm having a problem with the way it looks and the way it looks is I'm sure very functional. Um, it, it's just like, it's a little overly festooned for my tastes. Um, but also like, I am just picturing this thing like slowly going around town well and just like this you know like that, and that just that's, burns that's me the up. problem you know i mean with with any of these cars you know whether you know whether it's a corvette or a ferrari or a porsche you know driving them around town is not you know i mean the the people that will many of the people not everybody but many of the people that will buy these things you know are buying them to show off how much money they have and so they're, you know, driving around places like South Beach, you know, in Miami or, uh, you know, Las Vegas or, or, you know, Beverly Hills, you know, at 15 miles an hour. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a complete waste of a car like this. You know, this car belongs yeah. on the track or, you know, belongs in the canyons above Malibu. Um, and that's, you know, even there, you know, with with this much performance, you know, it's hard to to really utilize it all, you know, anywhere but on a racetrack. Uh, so that that is you know kind of the tragedy of all of these these super performance cars. Yeah. And I'm sure like on a, in a track environment, it wouldn't look as ridiculous to me on the cover of a magazine. Like it's just pretty hard to not just have everything in stark relief. Um, so in the right environment, all this stuff makes sense. I want to see it like, you know, dirty with soap numbers on the windows and stuff, you know, like use the thing for what it's for. Absolutely. Um, That's a little too much automotive philosophy. Uh, but I mean, anytime there's a new super is too much automotive philosophy. Uh, all right. Um, I can continue, but I think we probably should move on. Um, because anytime there's a new Corvette, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, now now we have that that we're, we're one step closer to that mid-engine car. I will I will have to come up with something to do when it actually happens because I'm just like that's never going to happen. It's that like honestly, since I've been alive, that's been supposed to happen. It hasn't happened yet, so like I, I need to. Well, you to know what? If it if it doesn't happen more. this time, GM will have pulled off the biggest troll in automotive history. You know, <laughs> just just trolling Don Sherman for the last three years. Why would you want to do that? Like, I mean, he doesn't seem like oh, a bad I, guy. I, <laughs> I, I I I can see Mark Royce doing that to Don Sherman. Okay, all right. <laughs> um. Well, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't I don't think it is this time just no. because of the number of the prototypes that we've seen. You know, I mean, we've seen photos where, you know, there's not it's not just a single car that's running around. I mean, you know, we've seen we've yeah. seen spy photos of multiple cars together, you know, being tested. So there it's I think I'm pretty I'm pretty convinced it's real this time. Yeah, well, it's not the most bonkers thing GM has ever done anyway. Uh, I mean, They've tried to reinvent the car business like three or four times with disastrous results. Like a mid-engine Corvette seems kind of tame in comparison. So uh, good luck, GM. Send one to us once you have them in production so we can talk about it. I will absolutely eat crow if there's a mid-engine Corvette and I <laughs> actually get to drive it. Um, all right, moving on. Let's uh, let's skip that one last topic because we're starting to run long and we had some some questions on Twitter which we should hit before we go. Okay. Uh, so the first question we got uh, while I wait for that 
to load um, was actually uh, from last week. And it's more about like a, a charging etiquette question. Um, so uh, a friend of the podcast has a, uh, I, th- I think it's an Optima plug-in hybrid. Um, and so he, he went to Whole Foods and he plugged into one of their level two chargers. Um, there's four spots. So he's only, you know, taking one of them and then he, he walks back and someone with a model S had come in and unplugged him and was using it. And it was more of an annoyance, you know, clearly be going to find a supercharger somewhere. Yeah. That, that person's probably an entitled jerk. (laughs) Well, actually, (laughs) I mean, um, you know, I think, um, the you know in general the the etiquette you know if it's a plug-in hybrid and somebody with a battery electric vehicle um you know t- you know entitled jerk aside um you know some somebody with a battery electric uh you know they don't have an option they need to charge you know if they're if they're low on charge so here here's the thing you know it, de- it depends on you know on the specific situation you know if somebody with a model s has got 100 miles of of range left and you know they're five miles from their house they should not be unplugging any other car you know plug-in hybrid or otherwise to, just to you know put a few more uh kilowatts uh kilowatt hours into their battery so they don't have to do it at home um you know go you know do it at, do it at home I and mean, you've got enough range you know you know do that but if you're if you're low on juice, you know, say you're driving, you know, uh, a Nissan Leaf or you know one one any of the the first generation of the, these modern EVs that only have seventy or eighty miles of range, um, you know, then I think it's perfectly valid, you know, if if you're if you're getting low, you know, if you're you know if you're down to you know, twenty five or thirty percent, um, and you you have a couple of other stops to make. You know, if it's if if you're taking the charger from a from a plug-in hybrid, um, then you know if there's no other chargers available, if that's the only one available, then I think that's okay because you know the plug-in hybrid is still going to be able to get home. Yeah, you may have to use a little bit of gas, but you can still get where you need to go. Um, so you know, it's kind of the you know for charging. You know, the EV BEVs get priority, then plug-in hybrids after that, um, and that's that's kind of the way it should go but really you know you should uh i mean you can you can generally tell if a car is still charging or if it's done i mean there's usually some kind of indicator on the outside you know either a light on the top of the dashboard that flashes while it's charging or in some cases a light around the charger itself you know? yeah and you know if, if the car is fully charged go ahead and unplug it you know that's that's okay um if it's still charging you know i mean certainly don't you know, don't unplug another EV, you know, to, to plug in, you know, wait until they're done. You know, if you, if you have to wait, you have to wait. I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the sacrifices you make to drive a battery electric vehicle. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if it's a plug-in hybrid, um, and you really need to charge, you know, then I think that's okay. All right. I mean, I can understand the whole plug-in hybrid thing that, that makes some sense. Um, uh, my outrage has, has cooled. Uh, I, I feel like I'm profiling Tesla drivers, Model S drivers for just I, some crazy reason. I can't really put my finger on there, it. There's a new BMW driver. Right. Um, uh, but, at least, you know, at least according to the way uh, the top gear guys used to define BMW drivers. <laughs> I, I think I'm probably 
uh, towing that line. Um, the Optima apparently has a green light on the dash indicating that it's charging. So that might be one of the things that causes confusion because green lights generally mean like, hey, I'm done. Uh when well, it comes uh, to battery I think it, I'm pretty sure it fl- it's it flashes while it's charging, even though it's green. Yeah, it's flashing. Once it's once it's full, then it'll just go solid green. Look, we uh, can't expect the entitled to be looking for nuance. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, I mean, I that it's a good point. Like, I mean, and I I do agree with the point of like, look, I understand like if you're you're a plug-in hybrid. I guess for if it were me. I'd at least leave an apologetic note on the car and be like, "Hey, I'm sorry I unplugged you." Yeah, and actually, you know, you know that's that's a good thing to do. You know, I mean, you know, just explain, "Hey, you know, I had a battery electric. I, I know you've got a, you know, you've got a plug-in hybrid, and you'd like to use as little gas as possible, but you know, it is a hybrid, and you know, I I don't have that option, and you know, I I needed to get somewhere, and so that's why I unplugged you." I mean, you could even print up little cards like Vistaprint, who well, does not actually, sponsor the podcast. Actually, make you could make them. Actually, back <laughs> back in the day, uh, you know, when I was working with the Ford communications team, uh, we actually did that. We we designed a card uh, for EV charging etiquette that you could you know stick on your dashboard, um, and and little cards that you could you know put on other people's cars to say, you know, hey, you know, I, I unplugged you for whatever reason, you know, or, you know, here's, you know, here's the kind of the, the list of priorities if you need to charge, uh, you know, here, here's what gets, here's what takes first dibs. Yeah. I mean, it's still, you're going to wind up with fistfights at some point because people are touching other people's stuff and that's just, you know, I understand that, but I, you make a good point. So I've, I've, I've gotten over my outrage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for now yeah uh so let's move on to the next question uh daryl is in the market for a cadillac ats and so he's trying to pick between the turbo four and the v6 uh mileage is roughly the same cpo prices are roughly the same um either are lighter than competitive cars uh which is true the ats is, is actually a very impressively we were talking about impressive engineering earlier. That's that's a pretty impressive package. Um, what else should he look for uh, on either engine? Um, you know, in in terms of performance, you know, the the Turbo Four and the V Six, I think, are pretty comparable. Um, the one thing that might uh, tip you is uh, in one direction or the other is whether you prefer a manual transmission. Um, and clearly, you know, manual transmission is always the right answer. Uh, so therefore you would want to go with the turbo four because you couldn't get the V six with a manual. Um, but, uh, newer, newer models do have an eight speed automatic. Uh, so, you know, it, I think it basically comes down, probably comes down to trans your, your choice of transmission. Um, you know, if you, if you want a manual, then it's turbo four. Um, if you can live with an automatic, you can go with either one, you know, whichever one you prefer the color and options that are on there and, and the, whatever, which one, whatever better deal you can get. Uh, well, and so the six speed is only one year, right? Uh, that's it's 2015 only, uh, and then they came the out with the manual. No, the six-speed auto. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, it was up up through uh, up through 2015. Uh, so from whenever they, they launched ATS, I think in 2013 or 14. Oh, is it that old? Jeez, I'm getting. Uh, I think so. It was it was the. The first. days all blend together, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I definitely don't buy the first year of it. Um, so that's my first year model experience talking, saying like 
first year cars are generally very different from second, third, fourth. Like the rest of them are fine. They they still do some of their testing. ATS actually launched in 2012. Really? Is that old? Yeah. Wow. It was a 2013 um, model launched in 2012. So I mean, yeah. So if you're getting like a 14 or a 15 and it's got the six speed, I don't know that you're really gonna you're really gonna notice any difference. Um, I'd have to drive them to, to uh, discern think, a difference. I think I would probably opt for the newer one with the eight speed if you're gonna go automatic. Yeah, that's the, the ZF is a better trans. That's the ZF, right? Or is that a hydromatic? Uh, it's it's a hydromatic. Is it? Oh. Yeah, um, that's a GM designed uh, eight speed. Uh, it's GM, probably going to be better. Yeah, GM doesn't use the uh, the Z- GM is one of the few companies that did their own eight speed uh, and did not go for the uh, the ZF uh, automatic the ZF uh, eight speed. Um, Fiat Chrysler uses that. Most of the Europeans use it, uh, but uh, but GM never did. Good for them. Um, I mean, GM makes great automatic transmissions. Generally. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the big difference for me is, is how willing is it to give you a downshift, multiple gears, that kind of stuff. So, um, also the turbo four with the manual, that's, I think there's probably more aftermarket combination. Yeah. Um, you, you probably won't find very many of them, but if you can find one, it's, uh, it's a nice combination. Yeah. And, and whatever a Camaro with that combination will respond to. An ATS with that combination will also respond to. So if there's other tu- tuning stuff you can do to it, because mm-hmm. um, I, I mean I know that the GM Turbo Four, uh, which I think this engine is related to, like, it is the it's the the, the corporate four cylinder turbo. Yeah. So is this the same as like the 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 EcoTech Turbo yeah. or whatever they called it? The that you could get like a stage three in the Cobalt SS and making like three hundred plus what? horsepower. One and the same. Yeah, that's a good engine. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so I'm saying you can't. You're not going to go wrong with with either yeah. that engine or the V6. Um, I, yeah, and and you know you, I think you'll definitely have more more tuning capability with the Turbo Four. And you're going to want it because the the Turbo Four may be a little bit underwhelming stock. Maybe I don't. Mm, know. I, no, I look I, at the ATS and I've I've driven the four cylinder ATS. It's fine. Is it? I just yeah. look at that car and I'm like, that just needs a small block in it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just all of the the, well, the CTS, I mean, the ATS, and, they and, all need it. I mean, any any car is going to, you know, generally going to be better with a small block. I mean, you, you, you really I know can't go wrong with that engine. <laughs> I know. I mean, the, the, the small block was. I mean, talking about miracles of engineering. You know that that engine. You know, has they have managed to get so much out of. An impressively small package. I mean, they don't call it a small block for nothing. You know, I mean that that is a remarkably compact and relatively lightweight package, especially in the modern iterations with the aluminum block and heads. Uh, you know, I mean, fully dressed, it's a four hundred pound engine. Uh, yeah. For the for the normally aspirated ones, you know, the the supercharged versions in the Corvettes and in the the CTSV are, are heavier, but um, the but they also make like eight hundred horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, we've seen so many other brands of cars, you know, that were 
uh, you know, that had, you know, that were otherwise, you know, really nice, but, you know, may have had troublesome powertrains, especially, um, you know, those that came out of factories in the British Midlands, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you, you often find them retrofitted with, you know, GM small block V8s. Um, and, you know, they run beautifully for decades after that. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole company uh, and I don't even know if they're still around. There was a whole company called Jags that run. Yeah. That- was basically their business was uh, swaps, like Chevy small block swaps into Jaguars. So they would make the, the mounts, and they, they actually had a kit. There was a Jags that run kit for... Jagsthatrun.com. Um, right. There's a small block kit for Volvo uh, 240s and 740s as well. They um, do a, a Jaguar, a Datsun Z, um, a Chevy uh, S10, S10 pickup. Oh, an S10 with a small block. That's that's Volvo a good 200 time. series and 700. Right. right. So they do the the engine mounts, you know, the, the brackets to relocate the mounts and and you know, the the wiring and the the, the basically just like the how-tos. Here's all the parts Ooh, you need, go get the them. LS1 RX7. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, basically I think we've just tried to say get an ATS and then get a V8 and then put them together. Uh, if you don't want to do that, just just get the four cylinder turbo with the manual. If if that's your thing, if you're a driving enthusiast and you like to shift, that would be yep. the one that I would pick. Um, yeah, I'm sure the V6 with the auto is delightful as well, but the one I would pick would be the four cylinder. Definitely. And I think that's we've made the decision. Uh, that's it. I think we should we should kill the podcast okay. for this, this this week only this week. Uh, yeah, only we'll, yeah. we'll be back. Um, we'll definitely be back next week. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be a year and, and one week into it. Um, but yeah, so. And, and next week I'll be coming to you from Silicon Valley. Excellent. Um, we can talk about the joys of the Valley. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of how we can make it a more Valley flavored show. I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, we could charge people. To listen we can, to we it can add some it. AI to it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, we'll in the meantime, we'll, we'll make it Wi-Fi connected and, you know, start, you know, charge $700 per episode for it. Right. Uh, and you're going to have to, it's going to have to, um, squeeze and, and itself. You'll have, yeah. You'll have, you'll have to buy uh, bags of, uh, chopped up fruit to go with it. <laughs> Excellent. Ten, 10 bucks a pop. Well, in the meantime, enjoy this episode. Uh, you can catch us at, uh, we are Facebook, uh, uh wheel bearings media, wheel bearing media on Facebook. We are uh, Wheel Bearings Cast. Only vowel is the A in cast on Twitter. Um, please leave us reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. We and, really appreciate you know. it. We've, we've gotten some, some wonderful uh, positive reviews on iTunes, and we really appreciate that. And, and uh, we'd love more. We, you know, we are not bashful. We'll, we'll take all the review, good reviews you can want to give us. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, if there's also like constructive feedback, uh, please feel free to yeah. uh, you know let us know how we're doing let us know if there's something that you would prefer us to to do less of or more of uh, and we'll oh that reminds tune. me uh, I think we did have a, an email <laughs> Dan <laughs> you quick. gotta shut up that's what I mean. <laughs> uh, an email from Jonathan Brown uh, suggesting that uh, we might want to break up the show into a couple of pieces and publish it a couple of times a week um, and you know the beauty of podcasting is that you can hit pause anytime you want and if you want to listen to it in two chunks instead of you know one hour and a half chunk you can do that you can listen to it in 10 chunks if you like you know uh, but 
Yeah, but also to, to Jonathan's point, I've also had this discussion. Um, I think what what we may consider doing, um, if I can get around to it, is actually uh, splitting off the, the car segment and, and publishing that on its own, not as anything other than like, here, if you're just interested in hearing about the cars, you can just listen to this one piece and it'll be shorter. That's that's something that we're considering. So let us know if you think that's worthwhile. Um, and otherwise, we'll catch everyone next week. See ya. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.